Back is about compassion and wisdom. It is said that if you remove compassion from the teachings of the Buddha, you remove the heart of the teachings. And through my own practice, I've come to see that if it weren't for compassion, I would not be able to open to the noble truth of suffering. And if it weren't for the noble truth of suffering, I would not be able to open to compassion. And so, in a way, they both serve each other. And in fact, the ever-deepening opening to compassion truly deepens wisdom. And it brings one to an unshakable place of compassionate response to the world. It's through compassion that we begin to allow ourselves to feel the pain of being human and to open to it. To allow ourselves to feel tender and broken. To experience our vulnerability, the vulnerability of being human and not to touch it with the added violence of our judgments of being wrong or bad. When we get in touch with the change and the insecurity of life on a very deep level, if we don't have compassion, we won't open to wisdom, true wisdom. It is compassion that is the key to opening to wisdom on a very deep level. So compassion asks us, can we hold our pain and the pain of others like we hold a crying child with a kind of tenderness without needing to improve or do anything or change whatever is happening with the pain, but just to be there with it, for it, sort of embracing it, um, cradling it. Can we hold the pain in our hearts and the hearts of others in this way instead of closing down or backing off in the usual way that we do? Or maybe we get too involved in it, we get too smothered by the pain. These are different ways that we respond habitually and unwisely to pain in our hearts and in the hearts of others. You don't have to go very far in this world to see how fierce it is. All it takes is uh, one day, one sitting of looking quietly into our own hearts. It's that close. When we look inside, because we can't help but be truthful with ourselves here, we see judgment, anger, blame, fear, sadness, guilt, feelings of inadequacy, unworthiness. These are all painful places of our hearts that are very hard to open to. Compassion is a really important training because it teaches us to live wisely with the vulnerability of change and insecurity. These feelings come up, judgment, comparison, blame, anger, fear, a lot because of the rapidly changing nature of life, moment to moment and our need to control what is uncontrollable. When we understand compassion and suffering deeply, we begin to understand that this suffering that we're opening to is really not personal, that it's quite universal. 
that when we open to a pain in our own hearts of sadness, of anger, a pain in the body, when we experience it at a very deep level, we begin to see, to open to the fact that this pain is no different than anyone else's. It may have its unique characteristics because of conditions, but this, this fear that I might, ha- might have in one, at one time because of conditions might be no different from the fear that another being has. And so we begin to see that suffering is not really personal. Suffering is universal. It's impersonal. And we begin to get what the impersonal nature of life is from our true and intimate experience of suffering in our own hearts and bodies. So opening to suffering opens us to the impersonal nature of life. It opens us to the anatta quality, the anatta characteristic, one of the truths of life, the selfless nature of life. This is a poem by David White, a poet from the Northwest, who who gives a lot of teachings about being present in the world uh, to people in business all over the world. It doesn't interest me if there is one God or many gods. I want to know if you belong or feel abandoned. I want to know if you know despair and you can see it in others. I want to know if you are prepared to live in the world with its harsh need to change you. If you can look with firm eyes saying this is where I stand. I want to know if you know how to melt into that fierce heat of living falling toward the center of your longing. I want to know if you're willing to live day by day with the consequences of love. So there's this fierce heat of our life that we constantly try to avoid or find ways to distract ourselves from or if it's too painful, we strike out at it. And we can use that very same energy to open to it, which would open to us to something so great, uh, an understanding that it would be liberating for us. So compassion asks us, can we melt into that fierce heat of living? Can we let ourselves open to the consequences of love, of opening our hearts? Sometimes when we hear the, um, the teaching of the first noble truth that Steve gave the other night, we begin to think, wow, the Buddha was really a pessimist, you know? <laughs> and this is hard stuff to take. But actually, the Buddha was a realist. Um, he did not try to make the understanding of life rosy, nor continually try to bring up conditions or ways that we could cover over what was really happening in our hearts and in the world. He just said it like it is. If you want to open your heart, it requires opening to the truth of suffering. If you want to be free, it requires opening to the truth of suffering. It's interesting that the greater resistance to this opening, the greater the suffering. And it is said that really the resistance to opening to the truth of suffering is really suffering. That's what we're really suffering from. It's the resistance to the opening. We use our energy to resist how it is, 
or we endlessly desire or cling to how we want it to be to be other than how it is in this present moment. Manindra used to say to me all the time that the reason why we need a lot of sleep, it's not because our bodies are tired, but it's because our minds are constantly resisting or figuring out something else that we need to get in order to cover up our suffering. And all of this energy is expended, and so we need to sleep at night, you know, six, seven, eight, nine hours. And you see when you're here in practice for long periods of time that you need less and less sleep because the mind isn't reacting as much. It isn't going out and trying to hold on or find what we need to distract ourselves with, some other pleasant event or condition, or to push away whatever is in the present moment that's unlikable, unacceptable. And so when we do this, there, Steve said the other night um, about not sleeping very much in the evenings, like one and a half hours or whatever he said, uh, for long periods of time. It's actually true uh, that that happens. And um, not that anybody's expecting all of you to stay up that late or that long. But in time, it happens of its own. It just, uh, the ability to stay more and more awake is easy because our minds are not reacting. The energy of compassion is like courage and love together. Courage and love equal compassion. It's the love, the ability to really embrace what's happening in the present moment with a, a strong heart. Because sometimes we need that, that strength to face it. But we have that strength out of the love of wanting to be awake a wholesome desire, a wholesome aim for ourselves on the spiritual path. This courage and love gives us the ability to transform suffering, mm -hmm. at least in our own hearts. And not really at least, because if we transform it in our own hearts, which is the only real place we can transform suffering, then we can really and truly begin to transform it in the world by helping those immediately around us. So compassion gives us the ability to open to the difficult, to see and experience it deeply, to touch it very deeply without getting lost or imprisoned or bound in it. And then when we can let that experience transform our understanding by just getting closer to what's happening moment to moment, we begin to see some great truths about life that we've never seen before. The truth of, very deeply, the truth of impermanence, the truth of understanding that there's nothing in this world that will give any lasting happiness or peace because everything's moving, coming and going, changing. And there's uh, this insubstantiality of all of life, including what we call a self, a me, a mine. Even that is insubstantial when we experience moment to moment what's happening truly. So there is this ability to transform on a very deep level when there is this courage and love to come close to our moment to moment experience. Charles Dubois said, the important thing is this, to be able at any moment to sacrifice what we are 
for what we could become, to sacrifice what we are for what we could become. When I first met um, my teacher, our teacher, Manindra, many years ago, in the first years of knowing him, I had just come from uh, where I had lived for some time. I went back to my homeland of the Philippines and was married and had children there and um, lived in a wealthy family. And yet, with all the wealth, life was pretty difficult, challenging, because of many conditions. And there were many sad reasons that I won't go into, but I had to leave by myself and with the children. So I came to America with them, and I began to raise them alone. Uh, So I was a single parent of these small children for about seven years. But the pain in my heart was great for what had happened to all of us. And um, Manindra was around for me to unburden my pain to in that, those first years. And so for those first years, he listened very open-heartedly and tenderly. And he would be very gentle with me in the first years, giving me advice asking me how I'd be able to let go, um, asking me to not be so lost in the past, to let my, let this present moment be more important to me. But I couldn't. I needed to, for some uh, reason, mostly based on ignorance, continue blaming others for my predicament, continue feeling victimized and sorry for myself. In, to put it in a nutshell, I was completely lost in my suffering, just completely wallowing in my suffering. And for some reason, you know, I got a kick out of it. And so I kept doing it. <laughs> but one day, because he was so compassionate, I have to say, at the time I didn't think so, I remember that we were going down Haleakala Highway and I was taking, going to take him to, um, to the Eau Valley for a little picnic or something, a little walk. And I began again with my story. And I swear, Manindra, I, had, I hadn't seen him up to that point. So up to here with me, he just said, how many more times will you tell me this story? He, <laughs> he was just completely sick of my story. <laughs> and, um, you know, when I looked at him so truthfully, I thought, you know, when you see the truth in someone else, you somehow see the truth in yourself. And I said to myself, yeah, I'm really sick of it too. Why am I telling this story again? And to make a long story short, he, in his way, um, asked me to really let go and to stop bringing the, the past into the present moment and to stop losing my energy, wasting my energy in the past. It was a really hard lesson and one that I still have to learn completely. But... Um, He gave me a key that unlocked my attachment to suffering, (laughs) my attachment to the past. And somehow, because of ignorance, because of habitual tendency, because in some way we find some kind of weird energy, I find that many times we get attached to our suffering because of ignorance, because maybe we don't know how to do it any other way um, until somebody points it out in a courageous way to us. This locks us in this terrible prison. And I feel so grateful that I have people around me 
that help me to wake up, give me keys to the prisons that I lock myself in. And mindfulness, compassion, loving kindness help us to do that. They give us our freedom. They give us back our freedom. They unlock us from the prison that we have locked ourselves in unknowingly. And um, that's, you know, just needs a moment of recognition. So when the Buddha talked about suffering, when he talked about dukkha, satcha, the first noble truth, which Steve spoke about the other night, the truth of suffering, how that is translated to the truth of suffering. Another way that I like to see it is that life is vulnerable. Life is always changing. It's very vulnerable, and we are vulnerable. And it's easier to see it that way somehow. It's, it's true. You know, we're so vulnerable. Even when there's happiness, we want to protect the happiness. We don't want to let it go. We want to find ways to increase it. Um, and happiness can turn into fear, can turn into overprotection, can turn into insecurity. And so even happiness has hidden in it the truth of suffering, the vulnerability of life. When I first heard this about the noble truth of suffering, I actually felt so happy that someone was telling the truth. I, I felt, what a relief that someone's saying it like it is. I didn't feel like it was a pessimistic thing at all. I felt like somebody's actually saying what is manifested in my life and manifested in what is actually experienced in my world. And I could start the spiritual path from the truth and not from some kind of far-out, unattainable goal. And I think that's why the Buddha presented the Four Noble Truths that way, to start where you are, to start where it's really true and honest to be. Really, how can we expect to realize our highest potential, the highest or deepest truth, if we can't accept the truth of this moment? The, tr the highest truths, the deepest truths, our highest potential will continue to be so far away if we can't accept the truth of this changing moment. So in retreat, when we're here, we see more clearly because we don't have all the usual props and diversions. The reasons why we ask you please um, not to read or write too much, you know, just little notes that you have to write, um, to bring your energy into investigating what is this changing experience that we call me, mine, I, self. What is this all about? Can we get closer to it? When we get closer, we see it's not as easy as we thought. It's not a bowl of roses, rose petals. It's difficult, and we need the energy of courage and love, which is compassion, to come closer to it. There are many happy moments, of course, but when we see more deeply, even into the happiness, there is vulnerability hidden there. And so we need this um, energy of love and courage to face everything. They say that self-knowledge is sometimes bad news uh, when we see more deeply into what's happening. 
there's um, something that comes from one of the suttas. This is what the, these are the words of the Buddha. There is one thing, O monks, the not seeing of which keeps us unfree. The not seeing of which keeps us unfree. Bound on this cyclic wheel of suffering, that one thing is the truth of suffering. Compassion teaches us that we can open to this truth when we begin to get closer to experiencing and exploring the terrain of our hearts and minds and to open to the places that have been closed down, to um, go to the places that are dark, to free the places that we have bound in some prison for some reason or other, and that we have the courage and tenderness to be in this harsh world. Recently, I've been um, finding more and more pleasure in reading Rilke's words as it was translated by Anita Barrows and Joanna Macy, two women. Uh, This is Love Poems to God. And this is about freeing our hearts and exploring the terrain. I believe in all that has never yet been spoken. I want to free what waits within me so that what no one has dared to wish for may for once spring clear without my contriving. May for once spring clear without my contriving. I want to unfold. Let no place in me hold itself closed. For where I am closed, I am false. I want to stay clear in your sight. I would describe myself like a landscape I've studied at length in detail, like a word I'm coming to understand, like a pitcher I pour from at mealtime, like my mother's face, like a ship that carries me when the waters rage. This is what it's like, the feeling that Rilke um, describes, what it's like to come close to the terrain of our hearts and minds, no matter how difficult it is. It's a very tender feeling. It's, um, It's a very, actually very satisfying experience to do that. And compassion teaches us that we can work with that, that we can work with what we have. We can use this energy of courage and love to open to that instead of using the energy to continually distract ourselves, to cover up what's unpleasant, to strike out at something that hurts us. It's simply a matter of experiencing reality with an open heart. I mentioned this the other day. Trungpa says, compassion is simply a matter of experiencing reality with an open heart. I've seen that the courage of compassion is an antidote to helplessness. And often in our practice, when we feel overwhelmed and um, just weighted down and withered by our inner world or our response in our hearts to what's happening outside of us. Even if it's, you know, just that it's too cold or somebody's breathing too loud or, you know, we can have these obsessive and really painful feelings in our in our hearts, and we use a lot of energy to look outside, try to fix it, try to control, try to do something to change what's painful. And so that, in, the, in practice, is what we need to learn how to do, is 
take all of that energy that's going outside of us to try to change, control, improve, whatever. I mean, when you look at what happens in most of the world, and even in our lives, really, I mean, take, take one day of our lives, we've got it pretty darn good here. So can we take that energy and bring it to the place in our hearts, in our minds, in our bodies, and feel that pain? Can we use that energy to feel how painful it is to be annoyed, how painful it is to be impatient, to not like, to blame? What is the visceral feeling of that? What is the terrain of the mind and heart? Instead of using that energy spinning out into whatever we spin out with, um, fantasies or blame or whatever. So there's this feeling of helplessness that can come when we're overwhelmed. And oftentimes, if you know how oftentimes you use just the right word to describe what's going on, and it's like, poof, it, it, it's just like, just the right angle of the camera, just the right focus on the camera, and we see it so clearly. Helplessness is a part of our hearts that we don't see so clearly all the time. And in my own practice, when I've been able to identify, it's not exactly rage, it's not exactly impatience, it's not exactly overwhelm. It's this feeling of complete helplessness in the moment. Like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to handle it. Actually, that place of I don't know is a pretty can be a pretty um, good space to be in if you can hang out there comfortably. If you can identify or name or note helplessness, it sometimes begins to um, vaporize what's happening, dissolve the kind of heaviness in the mind. So helplessness is a good one to watch out for, to begin to recognize when it's there. Recently, uh, there were two situations I had with two of my daughters that made me feel totally overwhelmed um, and helpless without recognizing it. In the summertime, the youngest daughter that Steve and I have raised together in her last teenage years uh, graduated from high school. And so all of my other children came to gather together here on Maui for the graduation. And so uh, there were four of my children here. And they're all doing pretty well. But during that time, uh, the one that came from Portland needed an operation. And she uh, was talking to me during that time in June and telling me that what, what this operation was all about, very delicate. They had only performed it um, not so many times in America. And they had to reform her hips because of congenital hip dysplasia. And so there was some threat to her life because they were working around arteries, um, major arteries. And it would affect also her chances of having children somehow. And so she told me about her situation, and I felt really um, overwhelmed by it. There was this happiness with my daughter graduating and this like sadness and helplessness with my number three daughter who um, just got married the year before and has a great life for now. You never know what's going to happen. 
And uh, so that was a lot of overwhelm with her. At the same time, my other daughter pulled me aside and said that before she left, she came kind of in a hurry to the graduation, almost last-minute kind, and she had had a test, and they discovered she had some abnormal cells in her uterus, and it she didn't have time to wait for the testing to come out, and the doctor didn't want to tell her by phone or anything. They insisted on speaking with her personally, so we didn't know what what it was all about, though she called, so she thought it could be cancerous. We really didn't know. And um, so she, we sat on the front porch uh, the morning of the graduation, and she started to tell me that she was, didn't know what to do. We, she has a daughter, my granddaughter, five at the time, and she asked me if we could write a will up so that um, she could write a will so that I could have my granddaughter and there wouldn't be any problems. And that she, she asked me if I would take care of my granddaughter if she should die. She was being very courageous about it, but I said, yeah, of course, what else could I do? You know, I would do that. But I felt so overwhelmed by both of these daughters and their situations and I felt so lost in fear, in grief, in not knowing what to do. Um, really felt helpless, but I somehow, I just couldn't open to the helplessness that I felt, not recognize it, not see it so clearly. And because I couldn't recognize that helplessness, Somehow, it separated me from my daughters. I was so absorbed in my own fear and in my own grief and in my own story, sort of, you know, self-absorbed. I didn't recognize how separate I was from them, how it had created a boundary between us. And they were, you know, doing their thing and feeling the ways that they felt, which I was, you know, just feeling sorry for myself. Here I am at this time in life. I thought, you know, the last child was out of the nest. There's some kind of empty nest feeling of sadness, but those of you who know, there's also this feeling of emancipation that, that's with it. Um, and so then, then this daughter says, can you take my daughter? And I thought, oh, okay, you know. <laughs> and, um, and I had waited so long to be able to practice and study the Dhamma more, you know. And uh, anyway, finally, when I opened to my own feeling of helplessness, it all of a sudden it dawned on me, this is the way they feel. They also feel helpless. They also feel like they don't know what to do. And here I wanted, I was in grief and pain and fear. I also wanted to fix up, you know, see what I could to help them to fix it up. And the moment that I felt my own helplessness and I could connect, with their helplessness, I felt the boundary lines, the feeling of separation between myself and my daughters dissolve. And for, in some weird way, you know, I, I didn't do anything special, I didn't, but we all felt, you know, like more, um, just our hearts were more entwined open together. It just felt like we were these three women in life, you know, for the first time that I felt my children, my little girls as women. It was a great feeling as a mother. And just felt like we were these three women in life sharing this feeling of vulnerability, of helplessness, 
this is how it is. This is how life is. This is the noble truth of suffering. And so I could feel when I opened to that and the barriers got dissolved that um, there was some shift in my energy, that my energy was no longer lost in the pain of my own heart, but had shifted more towards a compassion, a feeling of love and courage for what was happening. And so there was more strength in my heart then. I think I mentioned that in Sanskrit, um, the word for compassion is karuna, and it means a noble heart, noble heart. And so when we think of heart, you know, we, we often think of heart as just kind of this, uh, the not the physical heart, but love. We often think of it as some mushy kind of, you know, um, soft and not, not uh, courageous. But noble heart implies that kind of courage, a kind of heart that's able to come forth, to, to lead into life with the heart, to lead into life with the heart. There's an element of equanimity in compassion that, it is said, allows compassion to have uh, action from wisdom. The courage to move forth is said in, in, from compassion is said to come also from equanimity. True metta, true loving kindness, has an element of equanimity. True sympathetic joy has an element of equanimity. And so too, compassion has an element of equanimity to it. Otherwise, we wouldn't have this ability to be stable and strong in the face of difficulty. So there's this ability to experience, to open to the truth courageously yet tenderly. There's an honesty about it. It aligns us with the truth of life. When we're aligned with the truth of life, this sets us on a direct path towards liberation. And this is how compassion can transform suffering into wisdom. There's a phrase that we've been using in compassion, I care about this pain, I care about this suffering. When we're really compassionate, when, when compassion is coming forth in our hearts, we're not caught up in the suffering, we're not attached to the suffering, nor are we resisting it, but our energy is stabilized in the care, in the tenderness, of our heart being open. There was a woman who came to me, and different people in different ways come with their practice of compassion. And this one uh, was particularly poignant because she had been going through a lot of difficulty in her life and in her practice course after course, three month after three month after three month course. And um, finally, she came to me one day during this, uh, I think it was the year before last when I was teaching in Massachusetts at the three month course. She had a lot of tears and she said that the tears were not coming because of pain, but they were tears of happiness because she could finally feel her pain. She could finally feel her pain with an open heart. And though the pain was there, she really felt her open heart more. Her open heart was where her energy was residing and not in the pain. 
So there is a care, a tenderness, an open heart experienced when compassion is there. (coughs) And the pain doesn't keep us imprisoned in our own old patterns. It takes a lot of retraining. And it's said that this practice is not just a deconditioning of the mind, but it is a reconditioning. It's um, reconditioning towards those wholesome qualities of mind. It recircuits our hearts almost. We're so wired, or our hearts are so circuited in a particular way that we just fall into these deeply set patterns of identifying with suffering. Um, The patterns, the circuitry is so magnetic. It's so hard to demagnetize them, to decondition them. But when we experience compassion, when we can come forth into life, when we can lead with our heart, with courage and love, different patterns get uh, formed, different circuitry gets made in our hearts. We make new pathways, and the old ones aren't so strong, aren't so magnetic anymore. So we can use this practice, time of practice, as an opportunity to open our hearts in this way and to realize the wisdom of how life is so impersonal. There is this universal nature of suffering, which really means the impersonal nature of suffering. I read on an airplane uh, when we were coming home last year, there was a scientific study done of the brain circuitry of a child. And to make um, that research and study really short, the conclusion was that we are all born with this potential, this particular circuitry to respond to life in various, many different ways. And that circuitry, which is not used, fades. The circuitry which is not used fades. So instead of anger, if we don't go let our, you know, the energy of our minds go through that circuitry, if we short-circuit it with compassion over and over and over and over again, that circuitry of anger will fade. I think this is what it means to me. So we experience over and over again when we do our practice with compassion, whether we do the compassion practice in and of itself or whether we do our practice of mindfulness with a noble heart, with care, (coughs) with tenderness and courage. We touch the pain with tenderness with a tender awareness, and we learn where that place is in our hearts. We learn how to find that circuitry more easily and not fall into the ignorance of uh, anger or the other unwholesome states of mind. We see when we do this that the pain may not disappear at all. The pain may be there in its same intensity, but our relation to to it changes. Our relationship to it changes. We're not relating with blame or guilt or pity. We relate to it with care, with wisdom. Usually, when there's pain, it's said in the text that we relate in three ways to suffering. 
When it's ourselves or our loved ones, we usually get enmeshed in it. We get identified with it. We kind of fall into some kind of delusion with it. And from that delusion, we respond with aversion. We don't like the pain. But mostly, it comes from delusion. We get identified with pain. The other way we get lost, uh, relate to suffering in an unwholesome way with our enemies is that we enjoy their suffering. It's interesting that that was mentioned in the text. We don't see that we're relating to their suffering in that way. You know, we have this little bit of a voice, maybe not so little in some cases, that says, oh, it serves her right, or it serves him right. Or maybe he'll learn a lesson now, or maybe she'll wake up now. There's a little bit of enjoyment there. When it's a neutral person, a person that we don't know very much, we're disconnected, we're closed down. This is the third way we relate to suffering. All In all the ways, it closes down our own potential to see it with more wisdom, to respond with compassion. The far enemy of compassion is said to be cruelty when we strike out at uh, something that's difficult, that some suffering is presented to us that's difficult within ourself or outside of ourselves. If it's really hard and we're in a lot of delusion, we strike out a lot of aversion and delusion. Or we might have anger, another way of verbally or energetically striking out. Another way of cruelty is we close down. We, um, we withdraw our connection to our loved ones and those who need our energy. We close down to ourselves, too. We abandon ourselves when there's so much pain. The way we do this is we go into fantasy when it's too hard. We go into thinking mind a lot, figuring it out when it's too hard. The near enemy is pity when we get lost in our pain, when we're lost in sadness, in guilt, and we can't see what's happening. Rilke also said, perhaps everything terrible is in its deepest being, something that needs our love. Perhaps everything terrible in its deepest being is something that needs our love. So, with compassion we open to wisdom. And compassion and wisdom are said to be the two great wings of the Dharma, compassion and wisdom, the two great wings of the Dharma. One without the other is incomplete. With compassion, we begin to experience the universal nature, the impersonal nature, the true nature of life, which is wisdom. And with wisdom, we have ever-deepening compassion. We have true compassion when there is wisdom. I think I mentioned this quote the other day, but I will again. His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, Until you understand the meaning of suffering, there will be a measure of hypocrisy to your compassion. So it takes really our own experience of suffering to open to true compassion and to wisdom. It is said that if we ground our practice in compassion, 
we won't attain our highest potential just for ourselves, but we'll attain it for the benefit of all beings. If we ground our practice in compassion, we attain our highest potential for the benefit of all beings. It's not so hard to see why that's true, because when we have deep compassion, it really does benefit all beings when we have compassion for ourselves, for others. And when we see that the compassion for others can be no different than the compassion for ourselves and vice versa. In fact, it's not true compassion if you're not as compassionate for yourself as you are for others. Sometimes we feel, we know our compassion, we help others so much that we forget ourselves. I'm reminded of this over and over again when people remind me to, you know, think of taking time for myself, too. Um, So we see our deep interconnectedness with life, and we begin to practice more and more for the benefit of all beings. I don't know about you, but whenever I've practiced, and it gets really hard to be with you know, one more minute of that pain in my hip, or one more walking path with that obsessive thought, I start out, you know, I just stand still or be still again, and I say, I'm doing this for the benefit of all beings, even if I can't do it for my own benefit. I'm doing it for the benefit of all beings. And it really helps to do that. Uh, We have a neighbor who's a personal, who's a trainer. He has a weight room right behind us at our house. And so as Donna to me and to Steve sometimes, he offers us some personal training. And so this morning he, he, I met him on the road, and he helped me do some running. It's the only way (laughs) I'll ever get out there and jog is when he's right there saying, come on, you got to do this, and move your feet, you know, lift your arms a little more. And we came to the end of our run. We went down this, um, towards where the horses and the mules are, and we come up that little incline, And I just said, Buzzy, I can't do it anymore. I'm not going to go anymore. He said, okay, everything you've done for your, this far has been for your health, right? And I said, right. And he said, you're doing this hill for the benefit of all beings. (laughs) I said, all right, okay, then I'll do it. If it's for the benefit of all beings, I'll do the hill. So... Try it sometimes when it's a really hard, you know, really dukkha dukkha sit. For the benefit of all beings, could help for at least one more breath. So compassion opens us to deeper understanding, to deeper wisdom. And when we have compassion and wisdom, the two great wings of the Dharma, of the spiritual life, are strong.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.